Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with RFF fellow Matt Wibbenmeyer. Matt will give us an update on the recent widespread wildfires in California. We'll cover lots of ground today, including the severity of the fires, their impacts on people and places, and their causes, including the role of climate change. We'll also talk about how public policies can help reduce the risks of these fires, including the roles of prescribed burning and housing policy. Stay with us. All right, Matt Wibbenmeyer from Resources for the Future. Thank you so much for joining us again on Resources Radio. I, I want to start the episode by thanking you uh, because you were our first ever guest on the podcast about a year and a half ago talking about wildfires in California. And now here we are again talking about wildfires in California. So thanks for joining us again. Great to be here, Daniel. Yeah, that was uh, in November of 2018. Uh, shortly after the uh, campfire uh, that year. Um, and yet again, fires are in the news. Yeah. We need to, <laughs> well, we need to find a way to have you on the podcast to talk about things that are not about pressing and awful news events. Uh, so we'll definitely make sure to do that in the future. But today we are going to talk about wildfires and um, and we're going to talk about California so I won't ask you our normal first question about how you got interested in wildfires, because people can go back to our first episode of the podcast and learn about that. But I will ask you if you have any particular spots in California that you really like to visit that you might encourage people to check out, uh, either if they're in California or when they get to visit California in the future. Yeah, so I went to graduate school in Santa Barbara, at UC Santa Barbara, and I definitely have a, a very... Uh, warm spot in my heart for Santa Barbara. Um, but one of the things that I really love about California, just in general, is how diverse the landscape across the state is. Um, and so the place I'll mention is Pine Mountain, or uh, I've never heard it referred to this way, but the Wikipedia article on Pine Mountain refers to it as Mount Pinos. Um, mm. So uh, Pine Mountain is uh in the eastern part of Ventura County. It's about an hour from the coast or an hour and a half from Santa Barbara. Um, and it's a, a very uh, a broad, massive mountain with a very flat top. And it sits up at almost 9,000 feet, just an hour from the coast there. Um, so you can travel from uh, Santa Barbara or Ventura where there are a lot of palm trees and then be up at 9,000 feet very quickly where there are a lot of pine trees and in the winter snow. Um, so it's a very uh, nice way to get out to a, a completely different landscape and something that I think is um, uh, kind of rare to see the landscape change in such a short uh, distance. Yeah, that's great. I've never been there. I lived in California for a few years myself and one of my favorite spots was always um, driving north from uh, Santa Barbara on Highway 1, stopping in San Simeon to see the elephant seals. Oh, um, absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, if any if, if any listeners have not ever heard or seen elephant seals, I would encourage you to look it up on a, some kind of video service because they're pretty amazing creatures. Yeah. So, um, all right, we'll stop going down memory lane now and talk a little bit about what's happening in California. So, as our listeners will know, it's been a really tough few weeks uh, for, for so many people in the state. 
uh, from persistently high COVID cases to a widespread heat wave that led to rolling power outages, uh, and now this spate of enormous wildfires. Um, so we're going to focus on wildfires today, and I'll just ask you to give us an update. Uh, as of uh, today, we're recording on Thursday, August 27th. Uh, the episode will come out in about five days from now. But where are we today in terms of where some of the largest wildfires have been? And can you give us a sense of how damaging they've been? Yeah, so it's it's definitely been a really hard weeks for California, uh, especially for all of these fires to come amid the COVID-19 crisis and especially um, for this to happen uh, just yet again. Uh, it seems like every year uh, fire conditions um, have been getting worse, uh, especially in the last few years. Um, so this all kind of started uh, in terms of this series of fires on August 16th, uh, when there were 11,000 lightning strikes over the course of a 36-hour period mm -hmm. in the Bay Area uh, and around Northern California. The context for this uh, dry lightning storm was a heat wave across the state of California, which caused rolling blackouts across the state due to increased demand for air conditioning. Uh, and Death Valley reached 130 degrees, which was the hottest temperature ever reliably recorded on Earth. Uh, so this was a very uh, intense heat wave, and it came after a fairly dry winter and a warm spring. So these were very ripe conditions for wildfires and uh, a very large um, ignition event. And so we've had about 700 new fire ignitions across the state since mid-August. 1.4 million acres have burned so far. Uh, for context, at this point last year, just over 50,000 acres had burned. Huh. Uh, this uh, last year was, to be fair, a fairly light fire year. But um, this is this is a really um, massive amount of area uh, that's that's burned in just a short period of time. Um, not only are there a lot of fires, several of them are, are very, uh, very large. Uh, in fact, the second and third largest fires in California state history are now burning simultaneously on uh, opposite sides of the San Francisco Bay. So the LNU lightning complex is west of uh, Vacaville and Fairfield and east of Santa Rosa. So this is north of the Bay Area and it's over 350,000 acres. The SCU Lightning Complex, which is west of San Jose, is also over 350,000 acres. Just a few years ago, the Thomas Fire in Santa Barbara and Ventura counties made California state history when it became um, the, the biggest fire in state history at about 300,000 acres. And, so, and, and now, uh, just a few years later, it's the fourth largest fire in state history. Um, so these are just a really historic series of events. Um, the good news, if uh, you can call it that, is at least for um, in consideration of the scale of, of the, the number of fires and the area that's burned, the damage has been uh, relatively uh, low so far. So seven people have died and 2,000 structures have been destroyed. So certainly um, those are uh, really uh, terrible impacts, um, but they're fortunately not as large as the scale of uh, this amount of fire activity might indicate, and certainly not on the scale of the campfire, which killed 85 people and destroyed 18,000 structures. 
Um, so in terms of the impacts, uh, actually, air quality impacts may be greatest. And I, I know we're going to talk about that later in the podcast. Um, uh, but uh, uh, just due to how widespread those air quality impacts are, that may have uh, be the area that's causing the greatest impact so far. Yeah. Thank you for all that context. That's really useful. Yeah. Sorry, and I, sh I should mention, too, that uh, these events are far from over and fire season is far from over. So while um, though, though these impacts are relatively light so far, there's a long way to go on these fires. Yeah, absolutely. And just one additional piece of context, you mentioned that the fires had to date burned about 1.2 million acres. I was just looking up and uh, apparently the state of Rhode Island is about 775,000 acres. So substantially more than than at least, you know, one U.S. state. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, you mentioned COVID-19 earlier. C can you give us a sense of how COVID uh, might be complicating uh, the response to the fires, both in terms of, you know, the, the civilian population and um, evacuations, as well as how it might be affecting firefighting itself. Yeah, so, right, it definitely complicates the situation in a number of ways. Uh, so for people forced to evacuate uh, from these fires, and there's there's definitely been a lot of, of them, um, tens of thousands of people, uh, at least, um, they're not only having to uh, worry about how to stay safe from these fires, but how to stay safe in a way that also keeps them safe from COVID-19. So it's def that's definitely a complication. Um, after the campfire, there was a norovirus outbreak in a uh, evacuation shelter. So concerns over disease spread in these shelters is, are, are definitely real. Um, so shelters are trying to reduce capacity in order to allow for greater social distancing and they're changing how meals are provided. Red Cross is trying to uh, provide hotel rooms for evacuees in place of beds at shelters, um, though I think it's unclear how many ev evacuees have actually been able to get rooms this way. Uh, mm -hmm. I wasn't able to find anything on that. Um, and then certainly in addition to shelters, uh, Many evacuees are no doubt sheltering with extended family or friends, um, which in normal circumstances would be, of course, a perfectly uh, fine thing to do. But given the uh, COVID-19 situation, um, they may be wanting to um, isolate their own risk from the risk of family and friends. And so that uh, complicates the situation. Yeah. Um, but COVID-19 is also affecting firefighting, as you said. So um, normally firefighters stay in uh, large tent camps. They attend uh, so they're fairly close quarters. They work in close quarters. They attend uh, briefings um, where they all sort of sit in a large hall. Um, all of that is changing. And, and they've been thinking about this since the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, how to deal with this over the course of uh, this year's fire season. Um, so. They're uh, trying to work in isolated pods and sleep in isolated pods. They're doing remote briefings, um, all trying to prevent the risk of a COVID-19 outbreak uh, in groups of firefighters, um, which would, of course, um, be really uh, not only disastrous for the firefighters' health, especially as they're exposed to all of this uh, smoke, um, but um, could really reduce uh, firefighter availability through the course of these events. Um, and, and that's another concern as well for firefighting. 
especially in California. California uh, relies on uh, several crews of inmate firefighters. Um, I do want to mention that there are some dubious moral concerns uh, here with this use of inmate firefighters, especially given that uh, after they're released from prison, they have uh, trouble finding work with Cal Fire doing this work that uh, they were available to do as inmates. Um, yeah. So that's definitely a concern. But but that aside, um, throughout this crisis, fewer uh, inmate firefighters are available um, because uh, California's inmate population is down about 9% from a year ago um, because a uh, large number of inmates were released due to COVID concerns in prisons. Um, so according to one estimate, about 10 times as many firefighters um, would be needed to battle this large number of fires that are going on than are available. Um, and so so this uh, these concerns over firefighter availability are very real and, and COVID doesn't uh, make that uh, easier. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned air quality a couple times, so, so let's talk about that. Um, you know, anyone who's been looking closely at air quality data in California and broadly across the West has seen really concerning levels of uh, pollution. Uh, particulate matter is the one that I've been looking at most closely. But can you give us a sense of, um, you know, how the smoke has been affecting different communities, both in California and more broadly across the country? Yeah, so as I, as I said, uh, I think that evidence has been mounting that the air quality impacts from wildfires are among the largest impacts from these events, in large part because the uh, air quality impacts are so widespread. Um, so in Northern California and the Bay Area, they've had over the course of the last two weeks among the worst air quality in the world. But smoke has been spreading across the US. It's not just confined to Northern California. And in fact, I'm, I'm in DC. And this week, we've had um, some uh, slightly diminished uh, air quality that seems to be due to smoke that spread all the way across the United States from California. Uh, so this smoke really impacts a, a large number of people. Um, and there's evidence that uh, uh, because of this, the health impacts can be very large. Um, so the greatest effects and the people that should be really careful, especially in, area, in areas where the air quality impacts are severe, are the young and old and people with pre-existing heart or respiratory conditions. And of course, given COVID-19, anyone with uh, COVID-19 symptoms um, should be very careful about uh, uh, the smoke. Um, and um, there's also concerns that that some of the uh, smoke-induced coughing may lead to increased spread of COVID-19. Um, so among these populations, um, we have evidence that, uh, especially among the elderly, there can be increased mortality due to smoke. Um, one uh, paper finds that about 500 uh, elderly people per year die because of wildfire smoke. Um, across the United States. Um, there's also evidence that smoke uh, decreases uh, birth weights, uh, leads to greater infant mortality. And so these, these impacts can be very large. Um, there's also some evidence that wildfire smoke leads to um, 
negative consequences for a number of, of economic outcomes. So it can disrupt labor force participation and, and evidence indicates that, that these impacts may be on a similar scale to standard valuations of mortality losses due to smoke. So if we use uh, value of statistical life estimates to value those uh, mortality losses, the labor force impacts are, are sort of on a similar scale. So pretty large impacts there. Um, and then of course changes uh, to quality of life, what people can do outside. Uh, so I currently have a paper looking at changes in recreation behavior due to wildfire smoke and, and people uh, change their patterns of behavior there certainly. Right. Yeah, it's really concerning and fascinating how widespread it is. I mean, we, so I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and we've been having really beautiful sunsets the last week or so. And I think a lot of that is because of the smoke that's that's in the air that's been wafting uh, through the atmosphere. And, um, you know, it's a beautiful sunset, but you sort of have to understand the risks that, that go with that sunset. Um, yeah, absolutely. So one other, you know, piece of news that, that I've seen quite frequently related to these wildfires is, um, you know, concerns about forests in California that are filled with, you know, these thousand year old redwood trees. Um, can you give us a sense of how damaging the fires have been to some of these kind of iconic places, maybe parks or, or other places where there's old growth uh, forests? Yeah. So over the weekend, especially there were reports that uh, one of the fires had burned through Big Basin State Park um, in California, which is uh, California's oldest state park uh, and the home of many very large and very old redwood trees. Um, uh, the good news is that over the past few days, it's uh, it's been reported that most of those uh, of the very oldest trees and the biggest trees seem to have survived the fire. Um, so redwoods are fire adapted trees, um, as uh, most of the species native to California. Um, they're uh, very resilient, which is how they have uh, made it to be as old as as those big trees are. Um, so uh, it looks like those those biggest trees were able to uh, survive uh, at least these fires. Um, I do want to point out that uh, though it seems that these trees survived this time, there's there's definitely a risk here. Just because these trees are fire adapted doesn't mean they'd survive every fire. Many of the fires uh, in the past that these trees may have survived were were likely lower severity fires. And, and these fires that we're seeing in the last few years um, have been much higher severity than than likely that trees were exposed to in the past. So there is some risk. And, and fortunately, um, at least this time, these trees uh, seem to have survived. Fascinating. One of the topics that we talked about a lot in our podcast, uh, you know, almost two years ago now, was about the role of climate change in exacerbating wildfire risk in California and across the Western U.S. Um, are the types of fires that we're seeing now, you know, you've described them as being more severe than what we might have seen in the past. Are, are these roughly in line with what we might have expected or what scientists might have expected from the level of climate change that we've already seen, which is on the order of one degree Celsius above pre-industrial averages? Or, uh, you know, to what's the level of certainty we have about that? You know, how much of this is related to climate change? So wildfire uh, 
frequency and severity in the Western United States has been increasing over the last half century. Um, and there's, and there's uh, pretty solid evidence that that's at least in part driven by climate change. So uh, uh, the primary channel that that's occurring through is just a longer fire season. So springs are arriving earlier, which means that there's a longer period when uh, fuels are dry. Um, in California, there's also a later end to the fire season. And what that means there is that fire season overlaps with the offshore wind seasons. And so you get fires at the same time as these um, Santa Ana winds, for example, and that can drive really fast moving and damaging wildfire events. Um, so these fires are definitely, they definitely sort of fit the pattern of increasing wildfire activity. That said, the last few years have been uh, definitely really extreme and what we're seeing um, right now is, is certainly unprecedented. Um, the scary thing I think is that um, this is not very likely to change anytime soon. Um, someone uh, on Twitter, and I can't remember who this was, which I apologize for, uh, I think sort of framed this uh, very well, saying that we should be thinking about this uh, uh, each year uh, now, not as the hottest year of the last 100 years, but the coolest year of the next 100 years. And unfortunately, projections indicate that um, as climate continues to warm, um, this wildfire activity will continue uh, to increase at least um, as long as there are fuels available to burn. Um, so uh, this, this situation, unfortunately, is not likely to change in California anytime soon. Yeah, that is a really depressing quote. And I think I, I saw it as well, um, but it's a very true uh, and concerning quote. Yeah, just a good way of thinking about it, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, given that... Um, Climate change is not about to reverse itself, at least anytime soon, uh, certainly for not the next few decades, even if we are uh, ambitious about climate policies, you know, the concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere are almost certain to keep growing over the next several decades. What are some of the steps that um, you think fire prone regions in California or elsewhere are going to need to make in the next few years to protect their residents and protect those precious places? Yeah, so I think the first thing is to acknowledge um, that this is a problem and is likely to continue to be a problem. Um, so eliminating fire is not, not going to be an option. We're not going to remove fire from the landscape. Um, climate change is going to continue to happen and make this, uh, uh, this situation is going to continue to be um, extreme in the coming years. And so we need to take action on a number of fronts. So one way that we can reduce risk is to try to more proactively use fire on the landscape to uh, remove fuels uh, in safe ways so that when um, uh, unplanned fires occur, they're not as intense and not as hazardous. Uh, so uh, evidence indicates that Native people uh, burned between five to 13 million acres per year in California. Um, and, and you can compare that to the 1.4 million acres that uh, have burned so far in 
uh, this year, which we would consider to be a very extreme fire year. Um, so they were doing a lot more than we're currently doing to remove fuels every year across the landscape. Um, of course, there are some challenges that exist uh, now that didn't exist then, um, but I think it's pretty clear that uh, we need to be doing more in this area. Uh, another area where I think we really need to make progress is trying to um, limit where development occurs and how development occurs in high fire risk areas. Uh, the key thing here is the places that we're building now, we're going to have to live with for decades into the future. Um, and so if we, if we build uh, in, the, in these risky areas or build in ways that uh, don't take fire risk into account, we're going to have to be living with that increased risk for a very long time. Um, so it's really important to, to consider that in choosing how and where we build. Um, in California, this is especially tricky because the state is going through a housing crisis. And of course, people need to have places to live. Um, so I think the challenge there is to figure out how the state can build more housing in more central locations um, so that they don't have to live in more far-flung areas uh, with very high fire risk. Yeah, those are such important points. And again, also, Rich, as, as per usual with our podcast, it's like we could take any one of these questions and, and spend hours on yeah. them. Uh, but, but you've highlighted some really important points there. Um, how much of these steps that you've just outlined, whether it's related to the use of fire or um, you know housing development, how much of this is already happening in places like California? Um, you know the policy circles that you're aware of. Um, you know, are, are these strategies starting to be implemented, or is it still at the stage of kind of people talking about them and not doing a whole lot? So. I definitely think there's increased recognition that more action needs to take place on both of these fronts, but I think that there's a lot more that still needs to be done. Um, so in the area of fuel reduction, uh, California and some Western states have been working to increase use of prescribed fire, which is, which is when um, uh, forest or fire managers um, intentionally set fires to remove fuels, and they do this when conditions are, are relatively mild and the fire can be easily controlled. Um, and they're also working to enable greater use of managed wildfire, which is when an unplanned ignition is, um, rather than aggressively suppressed, when they allow that to burn in order to improve uh, fuel or ecological conditions. Uh, and the way they're doing that is by um, uh, removing regulatory hurdles for use of these uh, tools. Um, one of those being concerns about smoke. So uh, they're sort of easing um, conditions when prescribed fire can be approved. Um, they're also increasing funding available for uh, these tools like prescribed fire um, because it can be quite expensive to plan and implement these projects. Um, I saw today uh, that uh, amid these uh, ongoing fire events, California legislators are considering a uh, utility fee in California that would raise $3 billion per year for fire prevention, uh, including uh, money for fuel reduction projects. Um, so there's definitely activity on this front, but um, as, as I said before, um, there's, uh, uh, especially if we sort of consider what uh, native people did in California uh, and how much area is currently being burned, we're, we're 
a long way behind there. Um, in terms of yeah. development, um, there's, again, an increasing acknowledgement that we need to consider risk um, in development decisions. And so actually today we're taping on Thursday, August 27th, and there were there's reports that um, FEMA is now considering um, a uh, or they've announced a $500 million plan that would help people move out of areas with flood risk. Um, and so there's more activity on this front thinking about how risk can be uh, considered in development decisions. But I think it's still hard to find examples of situations where, where fire risk has actually uh, prevented an area from being developed or, or plans have changed in a concrete way due to fire risk. One success story I would point to in that area is uh, uh, California implemented uh, building codes in high fire risk areas in 2008. Um, and homes that were built after 2008 in Paradise, uh, California, uh, were destroyed at a much lower rate in the, in the campfire. So there's, uh, I think, good evidence that this kind of action can be successful in reducing risk to homes. Um, but again, the housing stock is uh, so so durable, so long-lasting. Effects of these reforms are really slow to take root, and it's just another reason why we really need to begin to integrate um, consideration of this risk into decision-making uh, today or, or yesterday would be even better. Right. That's so interesting. All those points are, are really fascinating. Well, Matt, um, I could ask you a million more questions about wildfire and all the policies uh, surrounding it that we've just been talking about, but we're at time. So I'm going to close us out with our top of the stack question. So asking you what you've read or heard or watched or um, or enjoyed recently that you'd recommend to our listeners. And I'll start with a uh, short documentary that I recently found on the website of The New Yorker magazine called Last Days at Paradise High. Uh, it's actually a, a short film that follows a group of high school seniors uh, in the aftermath of the campfire that we've been talking about today. Uh, and it just sort of gives you a sense of, of how they managed uh, during that time period. And it's uh, it's it's sad, uh, but it's also a really fascinating insight into um, how these events affect people uh, in California. Uh, but how about you, Matt? What's on the top of your literal or uh, metaphorical reading stack? That's great. Um, I hadn't uh, seen that piece, so I'll, I'll look that up. Um, I'm actually going to recommend something also from The New Yorker. Um, this was an article uh, from the July 6th issue by Larissa McFarquhar, and it's called How Prosperity Transformed the Falklands. Um, this is very tangentially related to natural resources and the environment, but I thought it was a really fascinating article. Um, the story is uh, basically about how the culture of the Falkland Islands, um, which are off the coast of Argentina, um, was transformed as they went from uh, very poor, um, sort of predominantly uh, sheep raising area without any roads um, to one of the wealthiest places in the world per capita. Um, and that was in part because Britain began allowing the Falklands to claim fishing rights in the nearby waters. And it, and it just totally, um, as, as uh, the people of the Falklands um, became wealthy due to these fishing rights, it just totally transformed the culture in some good and some 
um, arguably bad ways. And so um, I thought it was just a really fascinating article and a window into this uh, really remote part of the world. Yeah, I I read that article as well and um, would just second the recommendation. It's a really fascinating piece. It kind of transports you to a totally different place in the world. Totally, yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for joining us again and telling us about um, what's happening in California with the wildfires. I've learned a ton, and I know our listeners have too. So thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. Thanks a lot, Daniel. It's great to be here. You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode. 